Well, Holy Spirit, we acknowledge your presence in this room. It's my request that we would be awakened in a deeper way to your activity, to what you are saying, to what you are doing, that we would connect with you, the flow of your thoughts and uh, your intentions this morning as we open up the inspired Word of God. Speak to us, Lord. You never leave anything the same. We all have much repenting to do. Father, I don't ask you for information. I ask you for reformation. transformation for the beginning of processes of life which continue out forward from this time the encouragement of processes of life which are already at work and the interruption of cooperation with death Would you bring light that would reveal the strategies of the enemy and bring grace to give us the courage to change? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I've been reading a book that's been wrecking me. Uh, I'm about two-thirds of the way through it now. It's called You Are What You Love. The whole point of the... It's very good. It's, it, it is, it is uh, a brain bender, which is what... I mean, those are my favorite kind of books, the books that I have to go, whoa, 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 and like sit back and really think about. And the whole idea of this book, the premise behind it is that what Jesus wants to do is change what we love and that we'll only be more like Jesus as what we love changes. That there's never going to be enough information pumped into our brains that that doesn't change us, that information doesn't change us, that behavioral patterns change us over time and not just, not just information. Information is helpful, information is good, but it's not enough. What really changes what we love is repetitive practice. Uh, and uh, uh, it begins to uncover the part of the book, which I literally stopped. I think at the end of the chapter I was just reading, I, I stopped because he said, he said, now let's begin to look at the, at the, deformational practices that we have at work in our homes. And I went, I'm done. 
for a minute. <laughs> I need I need some time before I embark on this whole thing, which is going to make me realize that I'm the worst parent in history. Um, you know, it's it. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so it begins to first. It kind of cre- uh, lets you in on this reality that what Jesus wants to do is change your loves, and then the next thing it does is it starts show you, showing you all of the repetitive practices that already exist in your life, which are forming you incorrectly, which are teaching you to love things that Jesus does not love. And he immediately goes to the mall, which is like, I'm not a big mall person, but wow, like totally just pulled the blinders off of the story that the environment of the mall creates and and the the, the message that it's preaching and the repetitive practice of consumerism and how uh, the repetitive practice of consumerism is actually creating in us a love for the buying in of things because it teaches us that there that this is where happiness lies is in the acquisition of new things um, which is not true at all. We would all say that. We would all say, well, that's not true. But then we see an advertisement and we're like, oh, man, I really want one of those. Yeah. Right? Don't we all do that? And then we involve ourselves in things like, you know, the where we are in a bad mood, so we go shopping. Right? <clears throat> I'm just saying that what that does, that just reveals that you have been trained to believe a specific story. And, uh, and, and so Christian worship is the, is the reformative practice, which helps us to unlearn the story that our culture is teaching us and helps us to learn the story that Jesus wants to teach us. Anyway, great book. I would recommend it to anybody, but be ready. It will burn you. Uh, it's several years old. I don't know how old it is, but you are what you love by, I think his name is, his name is James Smith, James K.A. Smith. Uh, wow, great, great book, and it's really kicking my butt right now. Already in the process of getting burned by a book. Yeah, which book are you being burned by right now? Emotional, spiritual. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, that, that, that's a good one. That's a really yeah, good one. Yeah, being burned. Yeah, that's, that is a good one. Just got past like, the wall. <laughs> yeah that's a good one so the next one to burn you you know go for it uh no I, I haven't finished it yet and i'm really because now in the last half of the book is where we start to get the rubber to the road kind of a thing of so how do we create how do we build christian formational practices into our lives which is this is a journey i've been on for a while i did a whole sermon series on christian formational practices uh, like six or eight months ago called Muscle Memory. And, uh, and we talked about it then, uh, but I'm, I'm even more convinced now of how deeply important this stuff is. So, yeah, anyway, so, you know, whenever you start thinking differently, your prayers should change too. And the things you begin to ask for, and, you know, I've always asked for revelation. I've always asked that it would go deeper than just knowledge that gets stuck in my head. But I'm starting to recognize that, yes, I'm not saying we shouldn't ask for that. We absolutely should. But we need, what we need to be asked is to be set in the right way. 
not to give us pertinent information which will change, you know, but to but to actually ask God to begin to to set us in the right mode of operation. Does that make sense? Like to 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 shift not just the way we think but the way we practice because practice is what changes the way that we think about the world. Really truly, it changes the knee jerk of the soul. It is what you do that forms you. Not just what you believe because you're not just a brain on a stick. You are an embodied creature. That's why it's important that we practice our faith and we don't just think about it. We should be thinking about it, but we need to then embody it. We need to then live it. We need to then become the the physical representation of who Jesus called us to be, which is one of the primary reasons why uh, Jesus put communion at the center of Christian worship. Because it's a physical embodied practice where we are physically returning to the blood and the and the body of Jesus <coughs> on a regular basis, which is why Fremont Community Church practices communion every week. Because once a month is just not enough. Period. It's just not. I, I thought it was enough before when I didn't really understand what it was for. But now that I understand what it's for, I think... We should be having communion, not just every week, but like every time we gather as a Christian body. We should be gathering around the blood and the the body of Jesus Christ. We should be returning back to the center of our faith. But anyway, let's continue forward. Uh, Yeah, so Romans chapter (coughs) 7. This is going to be fun because there are some really mind-bendy things in here. And I have to, and there are some passages in this verse, in this chapter, which biblical scholars fight hard over, which is going to be fun. And I'm going to try and present both sides to you because I'm not sure where I stand, to be honest with you. I'm not. Uh, my, My faith is growing deeper and stronger and as it does, certainty is just being squeezed right out of it. There's a whole bunch of gigantic question marks in the things that I believe right now. And it's the most satisfying thing ever. It truly is. Because uh, I thought that, that I had to have everything figured out in order to be a follower of Jesus. Turns out the only thing I have to have figured out is Jesus. And the rest of it is just, you know, is, is all trust, which is really what we're supposed to be doing, right? Okay, Jesus, I don't know what's going to happen, but I trust you. Are you with me? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you trust me? <laughs> I don't know if you should. Okay. Uh, <laughs> let's read Romans chapter 7, verse 1. Or do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by the law to bound by law to her husband while he is living, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is 
not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Okay, I'm going to stop right there. Those first three verses are, are a continuation of the end of chapter 6, where he has been talking about this whole issue of how the, uh, how the law what kind of trapped us all in sin, and, and, and God came, and the law can't make anyone righteous, but we're being set free uh, through what Jesus did on the cross. And now, it, and now he's saying, because, because you died... When Jesus died, you died. When Jesus rose from the dead, you rose from the dead. And there's, we, we, we are so, uh, there's so many things that happened at the cross. That, and we tend to have such a, a narrow view of everything Jesus was accomplishing on the cross. But two of the, the, the things that, that Paul is focusing in on are, number one, that Jesus' death fulfilled the law. Okay? Ended it, basically. Now, that doesn't mean the law is passing away. No, Jesus is fulfilling the law. Jesus was the missing piece that the law was pointing to. And so Jesus has fulfilled the law. He's made it perfect. And that that covenant is over. That's why Jesus said, this is my blood of the new covenant shed for many. So, so Jesus was beginning, was ending the old covenant and beginning a new covenant with with. Uh, with the cross. The old Jewish covenant, the laws and practices of Moses have, are over, and a new covenant has begun where the law will be written on our hearts. And, in, and we don't have physical tablets or, or a, uh, you know, all of the trappings of Jewish worship uh, prior to that were all beautiful, but they were all to tell us about Jesus all of it was pointing towards Christ and Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. So now we move beyond it, which is why you don't sacrifice animals when you come to church. It's why we don't gather around a gold box with two angels on top of it. It's why we don't have one temple for the entire world. You have become the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. That's the new covenant reality. The old covenant reality was God in his grace and mercy is penetrating into the earth in this one place and around this one object, which is constantly being having blood put upon the mercy seat in order that God may be able to meet with man in this spot. Okay, now God has accepted the sacrifice of Jesus once for all to end the old covenant with its sacrifices and with its laws. And now Jesus is able to stand as the fulfillment of the law, and he is the only thing we need to approach God now. Are you with me right now? Okay. God had this determination that regardless of sin, he was going to live in the midst of his people. By the way, that's still his determination. That has always been his determination. Do not ever... Ever let anybody put into your mind a picture of God who looks at sin and says, Ew. We've almost, I, uh, in, in, especially in evangelical circles, there's this picture of God like he's just grossed out by sin. Like he has to pick it up with like tongs and like hold it away from him. Like, ew, 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 ew. And like, okay, I mean, do you have the picture in your head? Like, that's that. And not only that, but like God's hatred and anger 
burns against anything that has any sin on it, whatever. God hates and has great anger towards sin, but not because of itself. The reason God hates sin is because it kills you. Because God loves you. Okay, imagine that, my, that one of my children were to get a deathly illness. I would absolutely hate that illness. Not because of the illness in and of itself. When that, when that illness is not inside my child's body, it makes no difference to me whatsoever. But when, when that illness is in my child's body, I have a hatred, fury, and rage against that illness. Why? Because it's killing my child. God is not, God's, you need to understand that God's, hate, God's hatred for sin is based upon his love for you, not the other way around. And sometimes we think God's hatred for sin came first. And that's not true. God's love for you came first. God's love for you is primary and God is restoring you to the place where his love for you is, is, is able to purge away all of the things that keep you from him. Are you with me? Okay. Now what the law did was it came in and it said, guys, here's the deal. Here's sin. Here are the things that are killing you. And it gave wisdom and it gave a practice which allowed them to still interact with God, even though sin wasn't completely dealt with yet. There's a whole lot to talk about, about how the old covenant was an agreement between God and man, about how the old covenant has pieces of man and pieces of God in it, has pieces that God brought to the table and pieces that man brought to the table. And Jesus at the, that's why it had to be superseded. That's why it had to be removed. That's why it had to be undone because this, which was mediated by angels, it says in the book of Hebrews, uh, the old covenant mediated by angels was good and it was right and it was holy, but it wasn't enough. It was, it was, it was dirty. It was broken. It was never meant to actually bring people back to God. It was just a big signpost pointing forward. Paul calls it the schoolmaster, which brought us to Christ. And now we're not a part of the law anymore. Now we are a part of Jesus. And the law still has some things to teach us. It's still really good at pointing out sin. The law has always been very good at that. See, the law is a, is a thermometer. It's still really good at saying to us, hey, you shouldn't do that because that's a bad idea. By the way, it's not because if you keep doing it, you're going to hell. That's not how it works. It's if you're obeying this way, you don't believe what Jesus came to tell you. If you are obeying this, if you are obeying, if you're doing these things, you're not trusting what Jesus had to say. The presence of sin in our lives is the absence of faith. The end of the book of Romans, it says anything that does not come from faith is sin. And what I mean by that and what Paul meant by that was simply this. If you're not living out of trust for Jesus, you're living, sin, you're living in sin. And when behaviors that the law describes as sin are found in your life, We have to recognize that there is an absence of trust somewhere in us, which has led us to behave in a way that is not loving. Is this making sense? I think some people think that sin is an actual thing. It's not. It's an absence of a thing. Okay. <laughs> Just, <laughs> okay. Sin is like darkness 
Darkness is the absence of light. The presence of light removes darkness from the equation. It isn't that sin is a thing that must be removed from you. Sin is an absence of the thing which is your life. Does this make sense? We have to think rightly about God and we have to think rightly about sin. Sin is our absence of trust in God. So what he's saying is, guys, because you're in Christ, these last these three verses here are, guys, because you're in Christ, the, you, the law is over for you, and he uses marriage as, a, uh, as a, a, you know, an illustration of how law changes after death, but how dead people are not subject to the law. And because you died when Jesus died, you are not subject to the law either. Does this make sense? It's particularly poignant because he starts this thing out by saying, I am speaking to those who know the law. Now, in Romans, I don't think we had this whole discussion when we started this, but in Romans, the Apostle Paul is writing to two groups of people. He's writing to, for, for, to Jewish people who are now followers of a Jewish Messiah, Jesus, and Gentiles who are now followers of Jesus. In most situations, they were not spending much time together. They did not understand each other. And what they didn't understand, which Romans is really all about, is that now you're one family. That God did what he's always wanted to do, which was, was to call forth a people from all of humanity, not just the Jewish people. But he started with the Jewish people because whenever God wants to do anything, he starts with a community. I used to think that whenever God wanted to do anything, he started with a man. That's not true. I don't mean a man like only a man. I mean a human. <laughs> the truth is that when God wants to do anything, God establishes a community. Because God himself is a community, and God wants it reflected in the earth. We need to get used to using, to understanding God as a plurality, to understanding God as a community, because that's what God is. God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God's not a single individual. God is not Jesus, no matter what the Jesus-only folks try and tell you. God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now, each of them is individually God, but you'll never find any of them individually by themselves. Even when Jesus was here, he says, I'm saying what the Father's doing, and I'm coming in the power of the Holy Spirit. God has never been alone. He'll never be alone. He wasn't alone on the cross when he said, Father, Father, why do you forsake me? Whatever. He was quoting Psalm 21. We will go there someday if we haven't done it already. God did not turn his face from the Son. That did not happen. That is a misinterpretation of what Jesus was saying on the cross. We'll move back to that some other time. Um, <clears throat> Jesus was just quoting his favorite psalm, which was a prophecy of the moment in which he was living. Is it 21 or 22? I think it's 21. Anyway, Psalm 21. Go read it sometime. It's pretty amazing. And it starts out with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Just say it. Did you ever quote the first line of a song implying the rest of the song? Do you know what I mean? Did you ever quote like just a piece of a song for the purpose of pulling the whole song to people's minds? I mean, I would think usually that's how it works, right? You know, we, we pick the part of the song everybody knows or recognizes, and you sing that, 
And you're, what you're trying to do is bring the whole song to people's memories. Jesus was suffocating to death on the cross. He didn't have a whole lot of strength to say a lot of words. He couldn't, he couldn't hang there and quote the entire psalm. But he was trying to remind everyone, this was prophesied, and this is how I feel right now. This is really hard. Jesus was maybe both reminding us of the prophetic and <laughs> consoling himself because the end of that psalm says, he has not turned his face from me. Specifically, it says that. So anytime anybody's preached to you the opposite, they were dead wrong. But anyway, let's continue. <laughs> I've probably preached that myself because I was taught that. But I didn't know what Jesus was doing. Anyway. Okay, verse 4. Therefore, my brethren... You also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you may be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. So you died to, when Jesus died and you rose when Jesus rose. You died to sin and to the law and you have risen to new life, resurrection life, and that is your current existence. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been, but now, please pay attention to that verse, that word, now, 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 we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Some people like to take phrases like this of Paul's and say, well, that's pointing forward to the day when we'll be made perfect. Wrong. 2,000 years ago, Paul was saying now. And it's still now. You are dead to the law. You are alive to God. This is who you are right now. And you're called to live in the newness of the spirit right now. This is this is the moment in which we live. This is our hour. This is our day. We're called to live in the newness of the spirit. What shall we say then? Okay. Paul is anticipating, which he's done a couple times already, but he's anticipating the arguments that he's heard from other Jewish people in the past. Remember, he's talking to Jewish people right now. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? In other words, when he's preached this in other places, people said, are you saying that the law is sin? And Paul knows that that question is going to come up in the mind of the reader. So he says, what shall we say? Is the law sin? I know you're asking that question right now. May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except for through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. You ever put a picture, do you ever put like, you know, a sign up, you know, like, please, do not touch, and that automatically everybody's like, ooh. <laughs> Isn't that what people do? <laughs> what the Apostle Paul is saying is, I wouldn't have even known how to covet if the law hadn't said you shall not covet, but sin, taking, op taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. Oh, that's not what I'm supposed to do? I better, well, what is that all about? <coughs> Maybe I should investigate this sin so I don't commit it. <coughs> yeah, whatever. 
But sin, taking the opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. Far, for apart from the law, sin is dead. Now that is quite a statement. Apart from the law, sin is dead? Whoa, Paul. I was once alive apart from the law, but, then the, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Paul is purposefully saying things to tick off Jewish people right now. He really is. He's being controversial on purpose. He's trying to uncover their affection for and connection to the law. Because if you don't care about the law, then him saying these things is not going to matter to you. Paul is uncovering the idol of the law that still lives in the minds of Jewish Christians. Therefore, once again, he's anticipating the questions of the crowd. Did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. In other words, no. I'm not saying the law was evil. I'm saying I was evil. I was full of sin or I had no God in me. And so when the law came to me, all that I could do with it was make myself worse. Does this make sense? I had no ability to be like God because I had no God in me. So when the law came to me, it just made me worse than I already was. It was not ever meant to make us more like God. And when we attempt to use the law to become more like Jesus, we are going to make ourselves worse even now, even to this day. If this is your approach, well, let me say it like this. The, there, is an, there is a deep and powerful danger in what many authors have called sin management. As if the Christian life was all about avoiding sin. The Christian life is not all about avoiding sin. The Christian life is about pursuing Christ. No, we will avoid, I mean, sin will not be a part of us if we're pursuing Christ, or very, it'll be a very small part of us. But when we set our attention on sin and say, I'm going to eradicate sin from my being, we are obeying the law, we're not obeying the, the, the Spirit. The Christian life is about pursuing Jesus. So our attention should be on Jesus, not on you know, our own brokenness and our own sin. Does this make sense? What the law does is it shines a light on you. It shines a light on you. And you are the last thing you should be looking at. You should be looking at Jesus. Now, the beautiful thing is, Jesus will reveal you to yourself. 
as you pursue Christ, he will teach you and show you who he created you to be so that you can step into the reality that he created you to be. But we find ourselves by pursuing Christ, not by pursuing ourselves. Does this make sense to everyone? This is yes, this is no. Do I need to elaborate? Okay. For we know, now we're going to get into some really fun stuff. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing I do not understand, for what I am not practicing, for I am not practicing what I like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but the sin which dwells in me. For I, kn I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is my flesh. For the, willing is, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but practice the very evil that I do want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Okay, first of all, the Apostle Paul makes me dizzy sometimes. Okay? This is one of those, but do they know that you know that he knows that she knows that I know that we know that it, you know, it's just one of those like those verbal loops like, oh my gosh, Paul, please, what are you doing? Oh. Here's the controversy. Is Paul speaking in the present tense as far as this is his current state? Or is Paul putting himself into the state that he used to belong in? as an unrenewed Jewish man? Is Paul referring back to who he used to be? Or is Paul talking about who he is right now? That's the question. We have very good reason to believe that Paul is not referring to the way he currently exists. But a plain reading of it would seem to say that he's talking about his current state. What do you think? Well, it can't be both. It's one or the other. But which one is it? I would lean more towards... Um, I'm not sure exactly what you said. I kind of spaced for a second because I was thinking about it. But he's not speaking in the present tense about himself. Um, at least I don't think. Because I never really thought about that whenever I first... Like the very first time that I ever read through... Right? We read this and kind of go, that's where, that's, oh, that's so my life. Like, I really want to follow Jesus, but I'm not following Jesus. But, like, I'm not doing the things I want to do. And so you kind of feel better. Well, see, the Apostle Paul felt the same way. Right? So you kind of like, yeah, that's me. And, and then somebody came along and said, but I don't think Paul was talking about his current state. I think Apostle Paul was calling about, was talking about the way he used to be. I don't think I ever really thought about it like that. I think I just took that, that mindset of, Applying that to myself personally and now, yeah, you know. Um, so I mean, honestly, if you would elaborate on that, I would love it. <laughs> I I will, but I kind of just wanted to get your feedback first. <coughs> Anybody else? What do you think? First blush when you read this in its context. What's going on here? Is this? Paul talking about his current walk with Christ? Or is this Paul 
putting himself back into the mind and the state of an unregenerated Jewish man and talking about his relationship with sin and the law back then. Because when, when I'm looking at it, his past self believed he was doing good by committing all the murders that he was doing. He thought he was doing good, abiding the law, he thought he was doing good. But by trying to be good in his way, he was being evil, and he wasn't abiding truly by the law, but he was trying in his own way. So by trying to be good, he wasn't being good. Yeah. And by not being good, he just wasn't doing what he really wanted to accomplish. Right. This really feels like a continuation of the converse, of what he's been saying up to now, which is he's pointing back at his old state and saying that, you know, kind of putting himself in the character of that person. Oh, but I want to do good, but every time I do good, it's, it's actually bad. And when I do, and, and, and in my heart, I want to do what it wants me to do, but then, then when I go to do it, I can't do it. And then when I try and do it, I do it wrong, and everything goes... And, and, and what am I going to do? And I'm, let's continue reading. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one, who wants to, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Then he says in verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. What? Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body, body of death? Thanks be to God. Excuse me? Did someone else start writing and Paul stopped writing? What in the world just happened there? So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, my flesh, the law of sin. So here he is. I see he's, he's talking about this duality. He's talking about the conflict of, of like, you know, and <clears throat> like in, in, I'm reading in the New American Standard, it actually says the conflict of two natures. But that is, when you say that, that is assuming that he's talking about his current, his current life. That he's talking about the way he exists right now. But I think the beginning of verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, is him kind of hinting to what he's about to say at the beginning of chapter 8. One of the biggest problems with interpretation of this verse is we don't follow it through to the first part of chapter 8. We're like, well, I read my chapter 7 and now I'm going to close my Bible. And then we start with chapter 8 as if it wasn't connected to chapter 7 at all. Chapter, seven, cha chapter 8 says this, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, three verses ago, he said, I am a prisoner to sin in my flesh. And now in verse two, he says, the law, the spirit of life in Christ has set me free from the law of sin and death. Now, which is it, Paul? If we take the end of chapter seven and we say that is his current experience, and then we go to chapter eight and say, we either have to say this is a future experience that Paul is looking forward to, or we have to say that Paul is a schizophrenic. Because you cannot be a prisoner and set free at the same time. 
Am I right or am I wrong on this? <laughs> well, that's what a schizophrenic is. You know, mm -hmm. roses are red, violets are blue. I'm a schizophrenic, and so am I. <laughs> that's from What About Bob, my friends. That's from that's from the movie. Uh, but uh, what? It is a great movie. I adore that movie. Look at some of his writings. You never know. <laughs> there were a lot of people that think that Paul was like mentally ill, like, like he had serious depression. There are several places where he sounds suicidal. Like he had been suicidal, but now he's writing a letter and he's not anymore. But, but like, like there's a place where he says, I despaired of my own life and I'm dying every day. Like it's, it sounds like Paul is working through some serious stuff here. Okay. He was killed multiple times. Multiple times, raised back from the dead. He was, you know, he was only raised from the, he was only raised from the dead once that we know of. That we know of. But he avoided death by a very slim margin multiple times. Shipwrecks. Twice he got the thirty-nine lashes. You know, he was stoned to death, and then he got up and walked back into the city that just stoned him. I mean, that is the definition of insanity, right? To continue in a course of action even though you see nothing happen. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, that's, that's one of my favorite stories about Paul was they got so mad at him that they picked him up, carried him outside of the city and stoned him to death. And then he gets up, kind of puts the stone <laughs> off of him and is like, well, back to work and walks right back into the city. <laughs> question of the day is did God break completely home or did he walk in like super ugly well that's a great question I mean we don't know <laughs> the Christians gathered around him and prayed and he just kind of is like uh, hey guys how you doing okay <laughs> could somebody get this three ton stone off of my leg it's just not comfortable okay so back to Romans 7 if we're reading the end of Romans chapter 7 and we and we assume that he's talking about his current state, then we really have to reinterpret the beginning of, of chapter 8. There were no chapter breaks in the original letter. They were, it was a one flow of thought. I don't think it's possible to continue to... I just don't think it's possible to continue to interpret chap, the end of chapter 7 as Paul talking about the where, where he is living right now. I find it very, very difficult and problematic. Now, there's a lot of people who know a lot more about the Bible than I do that disagree with me completely. But they disagree with me about a lot of things. We all bring our own lenses to the Bible. I'm not saying my lens is better than theirs, except I'm saying it is. We all do that, right? I mean, come on. <clears throat> I happen to think my lens is the best lens. <laughs> How many of you have walked through, like, like, like the end of chapter 7 feels like you, like you've lived there? Let's be honest. Like that is, I, 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 will, I will be honest about that. That it's like, so often I want to do what I, what I know I'm supposed to do, but I'm not doing what I know I'm supposed to do. So often I, I, I want to continue to press in and grow and, and, and become more like Jesus. And, and I'm so often failing, over and over again failing. Uh, 
Yeah, that's real. Okay, but let's walk through the end. Let's walk through this chapter here, and let's let's talk about the reasons why this isn't talking about our current experience of salvation. Okay, he says, We know the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. Now here's the thing. Jesus was the one who ransomed us. Paul uses that phrase all the time, that we have been ransomed by Jesus' death away from sin. So if I, I don't, I cannot say as a Christian who, ha, who is living in, into Jesus' death and Jesus' new life that I am still sold into bondage to sin. I can't use, that phrase cannot apply to me. Okay? Now you might say, but it does apply to me because I'm still sinning. Right? This is yes, this is no. Every single one of us sins sins every day. But I think that we're looking at it incorrectly. Because Paul has spent the whole first two-thirds of this chapter telling us that we're dead to the law and dead to sin. And can a dead person be sold into bondage? He says, for what I am doing, I do not understand, for I am practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing that I hate. He's like, I am doing what I want to do, but there's still, there's something in me that hates what I'm doing. Even though there's something in me that's, that is choosing this, there's also something in me that hates what I'm doing. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. He's saying, if I obey the law. Now, are we dead to the law or aren't we? Because now he's saying, if I do the thing I don't want to do, i.e. the law, then I'm confessing that the law is good. In other words, I am choosing the law. We're not a part of the law anymore. That's what he's been trying to say to us all this time. Why would he go back now to saying, I want to agree with the law? Are you with me right now? So now no longer am I the one doing it, but the sin which dwells in me. So even when I agree with the law, it's sin that dwells in me that's doing it. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for the, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. What he's literally saying here is, even when I was obeying the law, I was still sinning. That's something that we find hard to believe. But wait a minute, I was obeying God's law. Well, the Pharisees obeyed God's law all day long, but Jesus still called them hypocrites. 
Just because there's an outward sign of devotion does not mean there's an inward reality of devotion. And the Apostle Paul is saying, even though my body is, even though I am obeying the law out here, it doesn't mean that the law is reigning on the inside because I still don't want to. The good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. But, I, but if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but the sin which dwells in me. I see a different law, verse 23, I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law, but God on the other with my flesh the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So now he's saying, that's who I was. That's not who I am. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. Now listen to what he says. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Okay, when the law came to the evil man that I was, the law could do nothing for me. So God came along and did what the law could not do. And condemn the law in the flesh of Jesus. Doesn't say in the flesh of Jesus, but that's what he's referring to. The law became condemned. What does it mean to be condemned? Come on, somebody. Uh huh. Correct. Destroyed. Written on it. <clears throat> Condemned means this has a future of destruction. So the law was condemned in <clears throat> Jesus' flesh. What have I told you? What did Jesus do on the cross? He ended the law. That's what Jesus was doing. He fulfilled the law. He condemned the reign of sin that came through the law, and he ended it. He condemned it in the flesh of Jesus. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You see how this is all one thought? Here comes the law to the person who is still, who is still in the flesh. 
What can they do with it? Nothing. They can do nothing with it. It comes, it just proves how evil they are, and they get worse and worse. And the law, instead of helping them, has actually made them worse. Which is why God had to come and do something. But the beautiful thing is, he did it through the law because God, you know, that first covenant was established by God, with men, but established by God. God couldn't just say, you know what, that old covenant, just forget about it. doesn't even matter. No, he had to complete the first covenant so that we could move on to a new thing. Which is why Jesus had to come and die according to the law so that we could die with him and end the reign of sin and the law over our human lives and move into something new, something better, something that could actually make us like Jesus, could actually make us like the Father, that could restore us to what we were created to be, because what is the first thing God said about humanity? Let us make man, what's the next phrase? In our own image. The first thing God said about man, he is good, that's right, but before he even created him, he said, he will look like me. He, she will look like me. Because it says in the image of God, he created them. In the image of God, God created man in the image of God. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. So that's... that's we don't get to do that whole thing that people have done for generations about. Well, men were in the image of God, and females were just part of... No, bullcrap. In the beginning, God created male and female. He created them in the image of God. That was that from the beginning. You are the image of God. Yeah. I may be over, overthinking something, but this has kind of popped in my head. Um, I think that that's... But since we are to conform to the image of Christ, I think that was him speaking that from the very point of creation, let's make him into our image, our very own image, as we are to conform to the image of Christ. I'm not, it's not a question, more so of a statement, but I just, that just popped in my head. Like, yeah. Homeboy was speaking that out from That's the real. creation. Yes. All absolutely. the way back there. What Jesus did was, what Jesus did was to give us back our, our divine birthright, which was to be, transform, be transformed into the image of God. And Jesus is the image of God. We're being transformed into the image of God. That is, what is, the, that is the human telos. Okay, there's this Greek word, okay, called, that's telos, which means the end. Okay, the purpose, the finish line, is the telos. And the human telos is to be made into the image of God. It's to reflect the image of God in, into the world. We are the image of God. And our, our purpose, our goal, our end, the reason for which we exist is to perfectly reflect, to image forth God himself into creation. Okay, 
we are reflecting creation back to God and we were reflecting God into creation. That is who we are. That's what we were created to do. And what Jesus died to do was to restore us to what we were created to do in the first place. Does this make sense to everybody? Okay. What he didn't do was die so that you didn't have to burn forever in hell. That is not what Jesus did. That's not enough. Again, we've got to recognize Jesus didn't die to give you fire insurance. Jesus died so you could be transformed into the image of God. I'm going to say that again because it's just plain good and you guys are half asleep. Jesus didn't die so that you didn't burn forever. Jesus died so you could be transformed into the image of the Son of God. That is what you were created for, and Jesus is restoring you to the full purpose for which you were created. Now, the reason that's important is because it should shape everything we understand about what it means to be followers of Jesus now. It should deeply root us in the earth for which we were created. It should awaken us to the fact that we're not just going to go away to the, to the great by and by and play golf forever. That is not your purpose. Some of you that enjoy golf are going, oh, <laughs> there might be golf in heaven. Who knows? I doubt it, but maybe. I enjoy golf. I do. That's not the point. Heaven is not an eternal retirement village where we're just going to, I'm serious, where we're just going to spend forever relaxing and doing nothing. That is not what heaven is about. We're going to spend forever doing what God created us to do, which is imaging God into creation and imaging creation back to God. That's what we're going to be spending forever doing. Now, what on earth does that look like? I don't even know. Now, the Bible gives us some understanding of what, like, you know, that first thousand years is going to be like. We're going to be rebuilding ancient ruins. We're going to be restoring the, uh, the, the destruction of our planet that has come because of sin. We're going to be working with Jesus to do that. But what's going to happen after that? See, what the Bible says is that the entirety of creation is going to be recreated through the resurrection of Jesus. What if we are also agents of that recreation? What if your job is going to be to go to Saturn to straighten the rings? What if your job is going to be... Okay? I mean, but, but think about this for a minute. All Sin has tainted all of the universe, and God, through, God in and through us is restoring the universe... To his, to his, to its pre-destructed state. Okay, and check this out. God also told us to manage the garden. Did he not? Isn't that what he told us to do? Didn't he tell us to make the garden? Okay, I want you to just think about this. Think back to Adam and Eve. Here's your job, Adam. Name the animals, Right? But we were also called to tend the garden, to be the stewards of creation, not just the inhabitants of creation. 
We're the stewards of creation. Okay, do you think that that was limited to a little garden in wherever Eden was? Or do you think that our stewardship of creation expands throughout the entire universe? And what does it mean to rule and reign with Christ forever? Now, we're not going to go run off to like the Jehovah's Witness place or the Mormon place, which talks about, you know, if you reach a certain level of whatever, then you get to go be the God of your own planet and your own spiritual children will inhabit that planet. And you will live in. That is a bunch of malarkey. But they are what they were doing was taking a reality that existed inside the Christian faith and twisting it so that it was OK to marry a bunch of people. That's really what's going on. They wanted, to, they wanted to be able to, you know, point at why polygamy was a good idea. And so that's why they, you know, had this whole thing. But it's based on a real idea. Athanasius said it like this. This is going to be scary. Are you ready for this? God became man so man could become God. Okay. The idea is called, I think it's called apotheosis. It is an ancient and well-worn Christian idea that is found in Scripture. Now, did he mean that we were going to become like the creator God, the uncreated God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit? No, that was not what Athanasius was saying. Not at all. What he was saying was, our telos, the finish line for the human race, is to reflect nature, the creation to God and reflect God to creation to be the stewards of all creation, that we are to carry the authority and power and creativity of God into the universe. You are called to rule and reign with Christ. And if you thought that was just located right here on the earth, I think we're thinking too small. I think the eternal destiny of humankind is to co-create with God throughout the universe forever. And then we're going to look back on these little five seconds that is all of human history and we're going to be like, we had no idea. Oh, there was that little hiccup way back at the beginning. Remember that, Father? That little hiccup where Jesus had to come and die for us so that we could, you know, be restored to our, our, our eternal purpose. That was, that was, that was a funny chapter. <laughs> Those 6,000 years, you know, 6,000 years. Six days. In Christ, we are eternal beings. 6,000 years is going to seem like nothing in comparison to the future of our existence. And that's, this is why it is so vitally important that we are being shaped to become like Christ because our destiny is greater than we know. God's plan for mankind is not to just putter around in vacationville for the rest of eternity. He has great things for us to do with him. Things we cannot now imagine or understand. And those things are own, are are beginning now, they have their roots in the now and everything we do now in this life will be made manifest through and into all the rest of our eternity. Leonard Ravenhill said it like this, Earth is the dressing room for eternity. 
these few moments, this these few breaths that we share together in this place and in this time will have eternal ramifications. Maximus Decimus Meridius in Gladiator said, what we do in life echoes in eternity, <laughs> right? Okay, so I wasn't quoting a theologian. That's the guy that Russell Crowe played in Gladiator. And any, anyway, nobody likes that movie? He says... He says what he, he says as he's standing in front of his army, what we do in life echoes in eternity. That is a profound and true statement. And I love that movie. Hey, when I get the single on this show. It's been a while. You ever think about that line too? What? When uh, he says that, when I get the single on this show. Yeah. Revelation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know about, about that. But uh, but anyway, let's continue forward. Are you with me, everybody? Are you beginning to understand that what we are doing right now is like it this this is the moment. This is the beginning of the race and not the end. That this these these moments are the moments leading up to the starter gun being pulled, the trigger on the starter gun being pulled, and that how we set ourselves in the what do they call it, that you put your feet in when you're blocks. the blocks, that how we set ourselves in the blocks is going to decide where we end in the race, and that's where you are. You're in the blocks. You're not in the race. You're in the blocks. Let's not get let's not let our current existence be so like in front of us that we can't see the billions of years that we have yet to exist. I was at IHOP one time and they said we're guessing that about 80% of the prophetic words that you receive in this life are actually meant for the age to come and not for this one. And I was just like, bah, I never thought about that. Let's pull back and get a more eternal perspective. I'm really not sure at all how we got there, but. (laughs) Where we live now, what we live in now, what we live into now is the beginning of the beginning of the beginning. It's the first sentence of, you know, it's the first word of the first sentence in Harry Potter book one, okay? Okay. All right. And we've got seven books to go, guys, and it's not even uh at the end of one of my, one of my favorite uh parts of of uh in fact I'll read it to you. No, I'm not gonna read Harry Potter now. No, I wouldn't have any problem reading Harry Potter to you. But uh I, I if that's what I was thinking of, I would read it. Now I want to read the last part of the book, The Last Battle. 
is the very, very end. These aren't, I'm not going to, no spoilers really, but Aslan is speaking to the Pevensey children and, and others that are gathered. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at the last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read and which goes on forever and in which every chapter is better than the one before. I always get choked up when I read that. Because it's true. You are an eternal being with an eternal destiny in this. It's just, it's important, but it's not everything. It sets the table for the future, but it's not your destiny. So many people so often kind of like at the end of their Earthly lives are like, I never got to do the things that I wanted to do. And you have no idea. You have so much more. You are not the sum total of your 70 years on this planet. Anyway. Think about that. Uh, I'm not going to continue on with chapter 8 because there's too much stuff to uncover and it's so good. I don't want to save it all for next time. But we have a bunch of time. We have 40 minutes. So, let's, let's talk. Questions, queries, posers. It was, uh, <coughs> something I heard a preacher say one time, going back to like what we were talking about, like, man be, being made in the image of God, right? So that the Son of God had to become a Son of Man sent down in flesh so that the Son of Man could become the Son of God. Yeah. And I thought that was just, I thought that kind of connected really well. And I really yeah. like that because it's, for obvious reasons, you know, by no means do we deserve, you know, um, but the Son of God came down so that we could be partakers and be not just, what Paul said, not just servants but sons. Yeah. You know, um, because there is a difference between a servant and a son. There is a difference between someone who is serving out of um, <clears throat> out of uh, um, out of debt and one yeah. that is serving out of dedication and love. Yeah. You know, so I thought that was awesome. Well, and serving because the other big difference between a servant and a son is the investments I make into my dad's business are investments I'm making into my future. Because this is my business. When I'm just a servant and I'm making investment of life and time and energy and effort into something that will never belong to me, what do I care about it? But every investment that I make today, I am investing into my Father's kingdom, which Jesus said is my kingdom. Fear not, little, little children, the Father 
is happy to give you the kingdom. I, I, I am working into and living out kingdom realities right now. I'm making an investment of life and time and energy into something, and I will never look back on any investment that I made into the kingdom and think, wow, I really wish I hadn't wasted my time with that. Because the reward for even the smallest things, you look at what Jesus said about, okay, uh, even the one who gives a cup of water in the name of the Father to one of my kids will not lose his reward, Jesus said. This tiny little thing, which we don't even think about. I was having this conversation with, I, I work at a, at a homeless shelter. Uh, and, uh, and we were talking about our, our numbers and, and the reality is we're working with people whose lives are a wreck and who the very reality of their existence, uh, the culture that brought them to this place, the chemical dependencies which brought them to this place, the way that they've looked at life their entire lives is fighting against what we're trying to help them see at the shelter. I'm not just giving them a warm place to sleep. I'm trying to help them to see that the, the shelter is called Turning Point because what we want this to be a turning point in their life. We want this to be a moment where they began to see life in a different way, including a relationship with Jesus because uh, it's a faith-based place. But, but also just maybe I, you know, maybe I can accomplish a lot more than I thought I could. It didn't spill at all, wow. believe it or not. <laughs> if it had been one of these cups, it would have been all over the floor. Um, that, that, that I have a destiny, I have a hope, my life can be better than I thought. And if I could just take this time and use it wisely and create good patterns in my life, then my future will look a lot brighter than it does now. And not just financially or whatever other way, but also spiritually, mentally, relationship-wise, my life will be good. And what I had said, to, and but the problem is that everything that has brought them to where they are is also trying to keep them from understanding and walking in the things that we're trying to help them see. And so we have a lot of people who end up leaving or getting evicted because they are doing things that make it impossible for the other people who are working hard to stay there uh, to continue to work hard to stay there, okay, with violence or they're using drugs or something like that. And so they get asked to leave. The number of people who do not complete our program is far greater than the number of people who do. And that can really, really make you depressed when you're working really hard to help them all complete the program. <laughs> but you're really trying to give them wisdom about what's going on in their life and say, hey, uh, you know, this your life can be better than it was, and if you continue to do what you were doing that got you here, you're just going to end up back here, which is not what you want, right? Does this make sense? And then they just walk out, or they do something that forces me to say that they can't be there anymore. It breaks your heart because it's like there was so much potential, and you're just throwing it all away. You're flushing it all down the toilet. It's really easy to get depressed in that moment. But at the same time, every little thing we've done every moment they've been under our roof, every time they've had a drink of water from the, from the faucet that they didn't pay for and that we raised the money so that they could drink it, every single one of those moments is something that Jesus is going to reward us for. Because even a cup of cold water in the name of the Father is, 
not going to lose our reward. So we are still doing Jesus' work, even if they walk away. Does that make sense? And I would rather spend my life doing the things that are going to bear eternal reward than spend my life doing things that are just going to make me happy right now. The reality of it is, and Jesus preached this truth, that, hey, by the way, doing things that are going to earn you eternal reward will make you happy right now. And all that other stuff that promises to make you happy, that is specifically built to make you happy right now, is never, isn't actually going to make you happy right now. You leave that stuff empty, unfulfilled, and like, blech, why did I waste my time with that? Does this make sense? Most of my life, I have bought into the story of our culture, which says, and I still do at some level, which says that spending money on things that are created to be fun for you right now is, is, is what you work for. That's bullcrap. How many of you have ever done something that was specifically created so you could have fun, and at the end of it you were like... And it wasn't that it wasn't everything that it said it was. It's just that that didn't really do anything for you. That at the end of the day, you're left unfulfilled. At the end of the day, you're left like, well, I spent a lot of money on that, and I don't know if it was really worth it. Buyer's remorse. It is a real thing. It's a powerful thing. It's a real thing. The thing that we all experience. Why? Because we believed the story that we were fed that if we'll just buy this thing, there'll be some level of happiness that we have yet to attain that will be attained because we spend money on that thing. And that this is really why we're working so that we can buy these things or do these things or experience these things. Okay, but at the end of the day, We're left unfulfilled. We're left broken. We're left saying, not worth it. You with me? Jesus told us the things we wouldn't regret spending our life on. Jesus made it clear. Jesus said, blessed are those. We send our, when we spend our life pursuing him and pursuing deep relationship with the men, women, and children that surround us, we will not regret spending our life on those things. Looking back at those days, those moments, those experiences, we will be glad that we made a different choice. I'm going to ask a question. Ready? You ready for this? Something I've been thinking about. 
What does it mean that we were created in the image of God? Like, what makes us different than, say, a, a, a chimpanzee? Yeah, well, I mean, just help me understand that. When I say image of God, there is something very different between me and a chimpanzee, correct? Would you agree with that? Okay. But most scientists would say a chimp has the medical, the, the, the mental capacity of like, you know, a young, like a child. Okay. So say you made a chimpanzee as smart as me, would they still be? Would they be then made in the image of God? Is it intelligence? No. Like it's the, it's like the spiritual spirit part of us. Like one thing I've been thinking about lately is uh, like I'm huge in like art and stuff and music, and I've learned that in this like healing season for me and my like spirituality is a lot of that ties in with it, and I think it's because like that brings this like this spiritual part of us out. And I don't think that could, for a chimpanzee, that, is, that isn't there. That can't be. But you put paints in a chimpanzee's hand and they can, they can paint. They can... Well, it's not like the, the spirit part. You know what I mean? <laughs> you just love playing down on that. Oh, I do. It's my favorite thing. It's my favorite thing is to play, is to play devil's <laughs> advocate. Um, so the spirit, but, but go deeper with that. What does that mean, the spiritual part? So I'll, I'll, I'll be with you, like, theoretically, theologically, whatever you want to say, uh, a chimp doesn't have an, a, a, uh, a spirit, so to speak. They have a soul, because they have a mind and will and emotions, but they don't have a spirit, so to speak. That, that was the breath of lives that God breathed into us. Okay, but help me with that. What does that mean? I mean... Gosh, now you got me thinking. <laughs> um, that kind of was the point. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. I just think in the when we're created in the image of God, we are every part of us that isn't flesh, which we are. It's oh my gosh, this is so much. Is there's just like there's God all over, all over us. Yeah. Especially when we step into into him, when we step into who he is and to who we are in him. Um, there's this there's this part of us that we no longer see things in the world way. We don't see we don't see any of the pain. We don't see the distraught in the world. We don't see the pro- problematics and everything in in the country and the and um, third world countries, we don't see those things the way that we would before. Yeah. And uh, that, I feel like, is such a God image in who we are and the beings of who we are because I don't see things the way that some of my family do that they that they don't know who Christ is. Yeah. And I believe that that is in them somewhere because they are also created in the image mm-hmm. of God, mm-hmm. but they haven't touched that part yet. And... I just feel like now that I've become in Christ, that I am set apart in a way that's I am in the image of God. I don't see myself the way I used to. Mm-hmm. I don't see my family, my friends, 
any of the things I go through, anything that my family's going through, I don't ever see it the same. And I see the image of God all over that. I see it through. I am seeing it the way that God sees it. And there's like a whole different spirituality and spirit part of that that I know has to come from. That's, I am a daughter of God. And I know that comes from that. Mm-hmm. Somebody else. Okay. Go. I think I hear just go ahead and use your same example. You know what makes us different from like say like a chimp or some other intelligent animal. I think one of the biggest things is like the like what are like the human like focus is always bent towards so like all of our like emotions and like will and thoughts always bent to the greater, whether that's good or evil. We're we're always thinking about like what what's like what is it really like what we're not we're not solely focused on living in a community, surviving, eating and not dying like the rest of creation is, but we're focused on and like bent towards like what's what's really out there, what's what's the greater. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. It does. Yeah. Like physically? Yes. So you think that God looks physically like us? I mean, I wouldn't know. But that's the way I look at it. I mean, I, no one really would know. I mean, he, uh, The Bible says that God's invisible, that God doesn't have like physical features or whatever. I mean, so 
and and if you if I take your I'm not trying to I, I think you're on to something, but I want to refine it a little bit because you talk about a warrior. Well, a warrior in my culture looks a lot different than a warrior in an African culture. And so uh, like that those kind of things will be all cultural con constructs. They those things that identify but God can't look different in every culture. God needs to be one way, uh, you know, in uh, all the in in all the places where God is seen. So, what kind of features are we referring to? Like, what are those features that refer back to? And that's what I'm asking. I mean, that's the question: is what are the features? Is it a physical resemblance to God? Because I don't. That's an interesting thought. I can't say it's very biblical. Uh, especially because in the Old Testament, God was like, don't you dare even try and represent me physically. sense of the eternal like from uh, Ecclesiastes that God has put put eternity in the heart of men and what I'm hearing from you is creativity okay which are all I would say sure I mean those are all reflections I'm not saying that they aren't that but can we go even a little deeper I always do. <laughs> I mean, those are all facets. Those are all realities. And I'm not saying that the image of God is any one thing. What, but I think the things that have been named are all expressions of the one thing. The sense of the eternal. Empathy. Whereas I'm not just caring about myself, but I'm caring about things above and beyond myself. Uh, Creativity in that, uh, uh, just like God creates, I create. Which is another interesting question. Do you think that God can be surprised by something we create? Oh, really? I think he can choose to be, but I don't think... 
Whoa, whoa, whoa. So a guy can put on the, the surprised face like, like parents. When you, when you already know like about the surprise say, party. Oh, you got me. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. I mean, I mean, that is of, lying. Well, no, I mean, I, I think that God truly delights in the things that we create. The question is, does, does he know them fully before they take place? I want to say he does because he knows if he's if he knows everything and he knows the future and he knows uh, you know you know all that then. But does God know the future exactly as it's going to happen, or does God know all possible futures? I think God knows all possible. I think Doctor Strange knows. I think he knows. Not necessarily because we have a choice. But is he capable of being surprised? I don't think so. If he knows all possible, <laughs> I don't think he's gonna know. And if you know something already, then you won't be as you won't be surprised. I'm, but there's a difference between knowing all possible futures and knowing which ones are likely. And no, and actually knowing which one is going to be like, is going to happen. My well, what, like, can you really be surprised if you already know? Here's your option. Yes, because if you know all possible futures, yeah. the one that actually takes place is still a surprise. But, but it's still, but, you you knew it was a possibility, but you didn't know it was going to be a reality, yeah, and that's like, not the same thing. But that's not really surprised. Yeah, sure it is. Because like I can know, like Ryan, I can know two of his options. Sure. Let's say that he's gonna choose. probably like at least one twenty options. But here, if though. I know he has a has a choice, like he's gonna pick one of those two. When he picks it, I'm not really gonna be surprised. But you're gonna I'm be just like, gonna be informed. Oh. Here's here, so here's my point. Like, if I know, I would say. Unexpected. I would say unexpected information well, is we'll is surprise. So if God knows all possible futures. And I feel like and he even knows the likely futures. What if what if a future he did not consider likely is the one that actually that happens? <laughs> that would be God being surprised. Yeah. So do we know? Let's just, just use Ryan in this example. If if we know Ryan and he he has two options, if if I know Ryan wholeheartedly, I, I know which option he's gonna pick. It's true. And like if God like crocheted me in the yeah. womb, like yeah, but then he just already know. Like I might have the free choice. But then own, but, but then he picks something that you didn't expect. <laughs> could he do that? Even if you know him fully. I mean, in theory. <laughs> I just wonder. It's literally impossible for us to understand. Do you think God looks forward to the things that we create because he's like, you know? <laughs> because. I think there's. I think you can bring happiness to God. I think you can bring joy to God. Sure. But I don't think you can surprise him. I think he's, I think he's all-knowing. I think, I think, Maybe surprise isn't the best I think, word. I think he's all-knowing. I think it's a great word. I think, I think he would be... I think, I think in the case of us doing something that was out of, out, like, I don't know, out of the ordinary, I, I think he knows what's going to happen, and it's either going to bring happiness or it's going to bring disappointment. Disappointment. That's a big word. And I think, I think that would be. Uh, I think you know. I can can God look at a choice that we make and think? I really wish they'd made a different choice. I, I think so. Yes. We make dumb, we make dumb decisions all the time. I really. But I was just saying I don't agree with that. I think as, a, as God being a parent, He's not going to be proud. He's not going to be happy with the choices of yeah, making a bad choice. So then, what's he? He's not going to be. He's either going to be. I think he's going to be disappointed as a parent. It's like, oh, that's 
That's, you should you should have done you should have done better than that. You shouldn't have done that. But he's uh, as a parent disappointing their kid. He's, they're not going to kick their kid out on the street for it. They're going to try to help their child. There's a difference between disappointment in the choices someone makes and disappointment in who they are. There's a difference. Well, I didn't say disappointment in who they are. Right, I know, but I think that's what they're hearing. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's totally definitely. What <laughs> but I think it's just because the connotation of just like the word disappointment does not, like, I don't know, like when I, like when my if my parents were to tell me they were disappointed in my actions, like that's to me that's also like them telling them like, I know maybe just as like a person, they're disappointed just as a in you flat because person, of the somebody telling me that they're disappointed is like, dang, like that hurts. Yeah. But I understand. Work. I understand what you're trying to say. But, but I'm just saying, disappointment may not have been the right. Di- <laughs> but I understand what you're saying. Well, what would, okay, 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 I think it's okay, okay. Wait, why can't God get disappointed? What would be the right word there to use? Disappointed. Disappointed. We know what you can't find there now. I try to think of another word, and like that would work there. I think sad. He wouldn't be happy. With the choices that we make, I, I think it's the, the right word. He's gonna be unpleased. I guess the correct way to open it up would be. <laughs> I don't. I like that. I like that a lot less. Unpleased. I like that a lot less. He'd be hurt by your. I guess he I don't like hurt either. I, I mean, to me, I don't. I don't. I don't necessarily connect disappointment with a choice that I've made and disappointment in me as a person, to at the same time because, because as a parent, there are choices my children have made that have made me said, man. Uh, you could have made this choice, and it would have, and it would have, like, been so much better for you. It's not about it's not about like he stole something from me when he made that choice because he didn't, but he's stealing something from himself when he made that choice. And so maybe you've disappointed yourself would be a better would be a better term or, or a better way of looking at it because that's I think how I don't think God puts I don't think uh, that that. God is quite so fragile yeah. as, like, his emotional state being absolutely up, upended by a choice that we make. Um, but but I do, think, I do think it breaks his heart when we make bad choices, but not because, like, there's this outcome that he wanted that's not going to happen. I think God has a million and one ways around our stupid choices. But I also think that God roots us on to make to make choices that are going to be good for us. Like, for instance, when, when I talk about Jesus being the best leader in the world, uh, there was, the, which I love saying that, but here's the thing, is my, my definition of that has really radically changed because I no longer think that Jesus is the kind of leader that's telling you each step to make. I don't think God's a micromanager in that way. I think Jesus is saying, here's what I really care about. I use your life to serve these things because not only are these things important, but this is also what's going to make you happy. I think really rarely does God ever come to us with like go to Africa kind of moments. I think more often it's like, what do you want to do? Yes. I just realized a serious fault in my thinking. Which is? Which is? Okay, so like... I don't necessarily don't believe that, based on like my own argument about that whole disappointment topic, I don't necessarily like not believe that we could disappoint God. But if if I believe the other statement I made, which is, if He already knows, if He knows what's going to happen, how's He going to be disappointed? He expected it to happen. If you if you expect something to happen, you can't be disappointed by it. You just said, 
well, that sucks, but, like, I knew it was going to happen, and you're not disappointed. So I'm just saying I realized the flaw in my, my thinking there. <laughs> the flaw is the fact that she was good. Even if you know what's going to happen, there's a difference between, I mean, because you, you said that you can't be surprised, pretty much, and you can't be disappointed. But if you can't, yeah, surprise and disappointed are two drastic different things. Surprise is something you didn't know was going to happen, right. and, it, and it hits you, and you're like, wow, that's pretty cool. You know, oh, wow, I'm surprised. You can't have a bad surprise? Yeah, there's all kinds of bad surprises. Yeah, but I think the, 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 the emotions are two completely opposite. And I think the way if you look at it from a supportive parent position, that no matter, even if you know your kid was going to do something wrong, and you, and you knew that, and you knew what was they were going to choose, I still think you can be man. I really. I'm just saying to the point. If if you both, if your expectations are low, you're not going to be disappointed. And like I'm not saying God's expectations are low, but He knows we're human and that we suck. So like, how is He going to be disappointed? He's not surprised. But God has higher expectations for us than He does for the people, other the other people of the world. Yeah, but just in the sense. Oh really? Of, no, but just he in expects the, us to look to a better, uh, higher standard. So? Then He. He, he expects, expects everyone to live more, to a higher standard. But yeah, but he expects <laughs> us as Christians to be... If we know the truth. <laughs> know anything, I don't okay. know the truth. Stuck on the whole, like, Man, I just really... Obligation to live to more of a higher standard than the people that aren't as followers I'm not going to be caught off guard, but I don't think the Lord gets caught off guard. I'm I'm just saying, if you, if you expect something to happen, you can be disappointed by it. You can't be disappointed by it. Exactly. No, you can't be disappointed by it. You'll still be disappointed by it. Uh, disappointment is the heart of God. I think that whenever we mess up, it's more of a longing for us to come back into His arms. I don't, because one thing that my mom always said to me before she whipped me was she said, I'm not disappointed in you. This is a rescue mission. That's good. Yeah. There you go. Dang. <laughs> no yeah. But I think she what she was communicating was I'm not disappointed in you as a person. Mm-hmm. I'm disappointed, but I don't I think in the same breath she would have said, I'm disappointed with the choice you made. Mm-hmm. That's I mean, uh, you know, that that choice was a was a foolish choice, that that choice was not the ideal choice. That there was a choice, there was a wiser choice, a better choice that you could have made and you didn't. And I don't, and I think we can, I think God, who is infinitely more capable of, God is entirely capable of feeling many, many things at once. Um, his heart is much bigger than ours. Um, his love does not change. And there's not a point where he says, boy, I'm disappointed in you. Like, in a, re, in a rejection short of, sort of way, like, like, well, I wish I never created you. Although, <laughs> I mean, if you read Genesis, it says he repented that he had ever made man on the earth. So, I mean, that sounds pretty disappointing to me. Um, <laughs> but uh, 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 that's anyway. We'll, we'll we can talk later about how do we interpret uh, Old Testament pictures of God, which uh, don't necessarily look like Jesus. Um, and, uh, and that's 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 an, an interesting. Conversation, but uh, but uh, that would take <coughs> several months of discussion, and and again, I have huge question marks in my own mind and my own heart uh, on a lot of that stuff. I just thought I would, you know, throw a curveball and see uh, uh, what 
you know, where we landed on that. I always love... I, I, what I'm not interested in are answers that cannot change. Are mindsets that are, well, I know this perfectly, and so I shouldn't ever... We should be in the state of repentance at all times about what we know about God, about what we know about ourselves, about our our personal uh, interpretation of Scripture should always be held like this, uh, with our hands open. Uh, everything should be allowed, excuse me, to, to be on the table. We should be ready to rethink at all times. I just... I think that has to stay true. I just do. I think there's way too much. Because my lens really isn't better than yours. And uh, my lens really does affect how I see absolutely everything, including how I see my lens. Okay? And uh, I am interpreting the Bible and God's revelation of himself through very, very thick glasses. We are looking through a glass darkly. This is reality. We do not see him as he is. We do not. No one in this room does. But we catch beautiful, soul-satisfying glimpses of who he is. So we keep looking. There will be a day when there will be no lens. When we will see him as he is. And on that day, we will be <laughs> like him because we will see him as he is. That's the promise of Scripture. But until then, we should all be ready to say, you know what? Maybe I'm wrong. Except for Sam, who has always been right and has never been wrong about anything. That's funny. And, uh, Very yeah. funny. Yeah. <laughs> Funniest thing I've heard. <laughs> uh, Father, thank you. We love you. Lord, I pray you would continue to keep us in the place of repentance, that we would that we would live unsettled, that we would live thinking and moving and pursuing and questioning and loving and being satisfied by all that you show us, but not satisfied with where we are. In Jesus' name, amen.